Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Today, I want to preach to you a message that I'm entitling Non-Perishable. Can you say Non-Perishable? And uh, I have, over the last few weeks, asked um, for questions uh, as it relates to uh, not only the supernatural, but questions of faith and questions of understanding, questions of meaning of life. And I just want to say from the outset, your questions have been poignant. I was telling them in the early gathering, uh, this has been a thrilling week of preparation, but very exhausting. If you did this multiple weeks or a series like this, you would be exhausted uh, by the end of the time. And so... Uh, I'm no Ravi Zacharias up here, but apologetics has been a passion of mine when I was in college. Uh, I don't figure we could afford Ravi Zacharias to come preach to you, so you got me. But I owe a lot of my thought uh, to Norman Geisler and Ravi Zacharias and Josh McDowell, Sean McDowell, all the great apologists in our nation. But I would just begin to work through these questions if people have submitted them, not only you, but friends have submitted them. And uh, I just want to take this opportunity, first of all, to, to welcome Julie and Tyler, Julia Jernigan, who, who is getting married September 21, is that right? Did I get that right? Julie was a part of our college ministry, and uh, I'm actually starting their premarital counseling today, but she's just recently engaged to Tyler. I want you to put your hands. They're here from Nashville, Shelbyville, visiting with us today. Thank you for being with us. But I'd like to pray to kick off our conversation and just ask God's direction, all right? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity we have together today to gather in your name. And I thank you that you, Jesus, will catalyze and start a conversation from our conversation today, Lord, in the hearts and minds of people about who you are, about who we are. I pray specifically, Lord, that you would give unexpected engagement to your people this week, that people with their hearts and minds would begin to grapple with the reality that they are truly made in your image and that this world was created with intention and purpose, and you, O oh God, are sovereign over it all. Lord, I pray you'd help us to see Jesus. God, I pray you'd give us great clarity and great grace, O oh God, to understand, and may we fulfill the great commandment to love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind and strength. And we give you praise for this in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. I've been getting all kinds of questions, and as I told them in the earlier gathering, I want you to invite you to share this, share the podcast. Uh, some of you people in your life, maybe friends, are not ready for human contact in the, the context we call church gathering, and that's okay. You can invite them via live stream. The live stream will be available on Facebook, on our Facebook page, if you don't follow us there. But I wanted to open this up to as many as people as possible because I would love for the conversation to continue. I want to jump off this morning by reading you some questions that are going to become a part of a larger narrative that we're going to look at today. And what I want to do, if we can, I want us to kind of journey together in a a uh, meandering way, if you will, to get somewhere together. Here's one of the questions I received. Pastor Craig, I have a friend who is an atheist. The atheist has two questions. Number one, what happens when you die? Number two, why are all religions created differently or are they all the same in the end? It's a great question. Another question, is God and Jesus one and the same? Why worship Jesus specifically and not God himself? Another question, why are there so many religions in the world? This person said, I used to feel that all religions were certain cultures' ways of personifying the lessons of God as translated by their culture and way of life. But as I learned more about Jesus, this question begins to grow. 
Another question, how do we reconcile the creation accounts in the Bible with evolution, Pastor Craig? Evolution is a definite scientific discovery, comma, also aliens. Please elaborate. And I love it because they signed off, I want to believe. I'm like, you want to believe in what? Aliens? You want to believe in the gospel, faith, doubt? What do you want to believe in? Evolution? But they want to believe. I, I thank God if you're here today that you want to believe or you're watching, you want to believe. This is the next question. Where did God come from? It's a great question, right? What is God's origin story? Pastor Craig, we are thrust into this story where God created the universe, but we didn't get the story of where he came from. Please help. To which I said, I'd like some help too. <laughs> I'd like some help there too. How can I truly know God is real? I've had what I would consider spiritual experiences, but how can I be sure that they can really be attributed to God and not just coincidence or synchronicity or the human mind's need for cosmic belonging or hormones? <laughs> it could be all three of those, right? I mean, it could be any one of those. Here's an excellent. I often hear you speak about God speaking to you and speaking to other people, and I haven't experienced that yet. Coincidence just is not proof enough for me. I hate to be that skeptic that demands proof, but I'm such a logical thinker, and I was raised by a scientific father, and these questions plague me. Another question. I don't understand the logic behind Jesus dying for our sins. How and why does what he do 2,000 years, or he did 2,000 years ago grant us as the current humanity the grace of God? Why punish Jesus by himself for humanity's sins? The next one I love is a little bit snarky, so you had to keep it and I had to share it. But, and Pastor Greg, if you were walking down the street with your kids and someone jumped out of an alley with a gun and said, I'm going to kill and shoot one of you, who's it going to be? My guess is you as a father would say, shoot me, let my kids go. I'm like, what? <laughs> They've lived a good life, <laughs> 18 months, five years. and I'm just kidding. But God didn't do that. He sacrificed his son. I don't get it. And it's an interesting question because there's a little bit of self-preservation there, right? It's coming through. Hello, Pastor Craig. I know you get emails. I wanted to reach out and I want to tell you based upon your answer, I already may be slightly disappointed. <laughs> I'm like, that's awesome. That's amazing because I consider that a win. If you're an atheist and you're only leave slightly disappointed today, that's a win in my book because you could leave greatly disappointed. But if you leave slightly disappointed, we're making progress, right? We're moving down the tracks. But this person said, very clearly, the biggest struggle I have with God is about natural disasters, things that are out of our control but totally in God's control. So I want to squeeze that in, hopefully, in today's conversation. And the next part they said seems so overwhelming to me. I, was, I felt like I was being set on my chest by an elephant because they said I'm out to pursue truth and meaning. And I thought, wow, someone's in search of meaning and trying to make sense of life, and they're willing to ask a pastor a question about meaning. But what is life really all about? But I want to tell you today, you need to prepare for disappointment. But that doesn't bother me. In fact, that doesn't bother me at all. Because today what can happen is it can open up an entirely new conversation for people. So I encourage you to involve other people in this conversation because I do know that God and his wonder and his love will fill the gap between what I leave unsaid and what your soul needs to hear. That God is a speaking God, that he can speak. So we dive in. Because these questions today, they really center around the idea of belief. Everybody say belief. That's what these questions center around, the idea of belief. Around why God, why Jesus, why the cross, why this. 
And I want to take you back, if I can today, to a little bit of my own personal processing that I've come to believe. Because I have come to believe. I'm a believer. I'm one who advocates for God every day of my life. I find myself weekend after weekend standing on this stage advocating for God. And in some sense, that was a surprise to me because for some people, belief is really easy. But for other people, belief is a great struggle. Belief is a really hard struggle. And I'm, I'm talking about uh, the, the journey of faith is always irretrospective. Have you, you know what I mean by irretrospective? You don't really remember your journey once you've come to know God the way you experienced it before you came to know God. You don't remember it that way. What are you saying, Craig? When you believe in God, things start attaching themselves to you because you begin to see reality through the filter of God. It is therefore then impossible to go back and review your story any differently. I can't view the first 16 years of my life any way differently than God drawing me to himself, and I met him in February 2002. But I know that that was not the reality for those 16 years of living. I did not know that. I was unable to perceive that. So a, faith, a journey of faith, is irre, uh, it, it's, it's, it's almost irreconcilable in some ways to understand completely what it is that you went through to get to where you are. But I want to take you on this journey because we're going to begin with the broad questions and we're going to move to the specific questions. So we're going to start with broad questions like, how can I believe in God when there are natural disasters in the earth? All the way down to the specific questions like, why would God allow the disaster of the cross? to take place. So let's start. I think when you look at it and you break it down in a simple framework, you really only have two options in life. You either believe that there is a God or you believe that there is no God. There is a God or there is no God. There's really no other framework. It's a pretty simple framework. You believe there is God or no God. Some people that I have met, they have seemed to taken and chosen a very specific position. And you meet people and they say, I'm an atheist. I'm an atheist. I'm someone who does not believe in God. There are others that are not what they would say atheists. They are what they would say scientific, or they might say they're indifferent. Some would say agnostics. But what I've learned, and I don't mean to demean you, listen, what I've found is that people who say that there is no God, they tend to have a more intense relationship to the idea of God than people who are just indifferent. They begin to have an intense relationship, and I don't mean to demean this at all, but I think it's very odd that someone would spend their entire life warring against something that doesn't exist. So every time they get on Facebook, they begin to war about something that doesn't exist. And it just doesn't make sense to me logically that you would war against something that doesn't exist and spend your whole life doing so. I don't demean that, but, but there's something going on profound in the person who doesn't believe in God. It's so much more than intelligence, though it is intelligence and logic. It's so much more than that. And when you frame this discussion, is there a God or no God, of course it moves into the realm of intelligence, it removes into the realm of intellect, and it moves into the realm of logic. But it's so much more profound than that. So I don't want us to be confused today. People say no God. There is no God. So in place of no God, people put science there. They say science. The worldview of no God is science, and the worldview of, faith, of God is faith. Now, when you look at those two different worldviews, we immediately see that science, it seems to be that science and faith are actually in conflict with one another. But any thinking person with a true, genuine faith knows that there's actually no conflict between science and faith. There's no conflict at all. In fact, it's very clear that science and faith, there's not a real dilemma. It may be what we would call a superimposed dilemma, but it's not a real dilemma. The conflict, on the other hand, is between superstition and philosophy. That's the conflict. 
superstition, and philosophy. You say, Craig, what do you mean? Well, philosophy is a study of wisdom. I love philosophy. We can talk about philosophy. But what science is really good at is answering most questions that humans ask. Science focuses on the how. This is what science answers. Science focuses on the how, like how does gravity work? How did the universe come into be? How did everything happen? And of course, around the question of how are questions like what, questions like when, and questions like where. These are the questions of science. Now, science, I want to tell you, I love science, my favorite subject. It does a fabulous job of answering those type of questions. Science is really good at that. You can study, you can observe, and you can determine as a scientist the answer to those questions. But once you move into the other human questions, the questions of who and the questions of why, you move out of the realm of science into another realm. Now listen, if you're listening today and you do not have a worldview of God, you need to understand, even if you don't believe in God, you must confess and you must agree that the questions of who and why are not science questions, but they are philosophy questions. So what I'm saying is that you don't have to believe in God, but you do have to understand that these questions of who and why are not scientific questions. It's not questions that science answers. They're not scientific questions. Now, of course, it moves into the study of philosophy, which I love philosophy, but we didn't realize that the who and the why can't be addressed by science. It doesn't mean, by the way, that they can always adequately be addressed by faith. It just means that they can't be addressed on the right. What I think is interesting, listen to me, follow me. Humans are more predisposed to ask the who and the why more than the what, how, when, and where. We as human beings are predisposed to ask these type of questions. We are. One of the questions asked in the email was, how in the world can we believe in creation as opposed to evolution? How can we believe in creation? And what evolution does is it really lends itself to the how, what, when, and where. That's what evolution is, like what ate him? (laughs) Like when did it happen? Like what time period? Jurassic time period? Jurassic? What? What, What time period did it happen? Where did it come from? How did you keep from getting eaten? (laughs) You're still here today. When does it eat? Questions of science. But the questions of who and why are not even good evolutionary questions. They're not good evolutionary questions. And if you've had children... You know that according to scientists, we as our children should be asking questions of how and not why. As good humans, we should be asking the questions that science could answer, but we're asking the why. See, at two years old, you would give anything to have your child say, Dad, how do I determine when I'm about to have a bowel movement? You would love your two-year-old to say, how do I determine how to hold my pee-pee before I see a toilet? You would love that question. You would love the question of how, how can I, or where is the mop so that I can clean mom's floors? They don't ask that question, okay? You don't have your kids driving you crazy asking how, 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 how. They don't ask, how does this car run? They get in the car. They don't ask, dad, how do you make money? They see that you make money. They don't ask, how do you build a house? They watch the house go up. They don't ask these questions as children about how. They ask you, why, 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 why? 
And when you have your first kid, it seems a little darling. It seems inquisitive. You seem so innocent. You have great patience for the first child. And so they ask questions like, why does it have to be 9 o'clock, Dad? Or like my son last night, why do I have to go to bed at this time? Or why do I need sleep? Or why in the world will I not feel good tomorrow if I don't go to sleep? And after a while, you get tired of answering the why questions, and you give up, and you say, because I said so. Right? Which is how we see God relating to the world. We think that we have questions and God just says, because I said so. But here's my question for you. Why is not an evolutionary question. We should have evolved out of the why according to science, but it's actually why that drives everything about being a human. Doesn't make sense, right? We should have evolved out of the why into this. So we have a conflict not between God or science and creation or science and faith. What we have a conflict is a conflict between superstition and philosophy. You say, Craig, what do you mean? Yeah, because, by the way, truth does not belong to science. Did you know this? Truth belongs to all of us. Truth belongs to anyone who would pursue it. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Truth belongs to any of us. Now listen, sometimes... Sometimes God and faith or science, no God and, and, and science will find a truth and sometimes the faith community will find a truth. I mean, sometimes we betray truth altogether. But what I want you to understand is that faith doesn't belong, or excuse me, truth doesn't belong just to science. It belongs to any who pursue it. But the part of the power of faith is our pursuit of truth. That we keep on pursuing after truth. So I had to go back and I think, a view that there is no God, I'm just going to be honest with you, a view that there is no God does not adequately explain to me what I perceive it is to be a human. It just doesn't adequately explain. And I love Hockham's razor, the great philosophical principle. It says the simplest answer is usually the one that's right. The simplest answer is usually the one that's right. So what I want to do, if you'll follow me for a moment, I want to lay out to you why I actually think it's more logical to believe in God than it is to not. Why it's more logical to believe in God and his existence than it is not to believe. Because one of the questions that was asked is, how can I believe in God? I was raised by a, uh, uh, to be logical by a scientific father. I want you to realize that believing in God is no less logical than not believing in God. And not believing in God is no more logical than believing in God. And I know how we do it, right? I'll give you a quick disclaimer up front. I know there are really dumb people who believe in God. And I'm not, I don't mean, I don't mean, I don't mean uneducated people. That's ignorant people. I, I said dumb people. You get around them and they make a dumb comment and they're, you're a Christian and you're like, oh dear God, I'm embarrassed of what they say. Anybody ever had this before? And you're embarrassed and you're like, I belong to the team, but I might be on the team today, you know. <laughs> I'm not going to tell them I'm on the team. Like you just get really embarrassed because they make a dumb comment, just a dumb statement. I don't mean uneducated, I mean a dumb See, there are a lot of people who talk about God, and I'm like, oh, my God, that was dumb. I'm, I'm dumb by association. <laughs> and it's usually in contrast to a really intelligent person who doesn't believe in God, right? CNN, they get the dumbest evangelical, and then they get the really smart scientists and put them on CNN News at nighttime, right? It's like they find the dumbest one they can find, and they put them... In, in, in contrast to somebody who's really intellectual and somebody who's very scientific and somebody who's very intelligent that doesn't believe in God. Well, that's the problem. So you got super smart people who don't believe in God and super dumb people who do believe in God. So which way am I going to go? 
So here's what we do. We say as Christians, let's not talk about anything that requires intelligence. Let's just keep it in the realm of faith. That's where we go wrong. We think, oh, I'm going to be scared if we go into intelligent conversation. So let's just keep it in the realm of faith, which is the exact opposite of what we're doing today. But I got really good, great news for you. There are dumb people who do not believe in God. <laughs> That's very reassuring. I'm going to say it one more time. There are really dumb people who do not believe in God. And there are really smart people who do believe in God. Very intelligent people. So this is the dilemma. Intelligence doesn't seem to be the pathway to lead to a sure conclusion. So what we've got to do is we've got to jump tracks. If intelligence doesn't lead us to surety, a sure conclusion, we've got to go to another, another track. Now listen, when you don't believe there is a God, you have a certain view of the universe. The universe, when you don't believe in God, is a determined universe. It is a universe that is completely run by cause and effect. That's what this universe is. And this universe is entirely mathematical. When you don't believe in God, it lends itself to a certain worldview. Now, there are so many implications involved when you have a world that's a universe that's run by a determined state and a cause and effect and mathematical that lends itself that there is no free will. There is no creative act. It was a big bang. No creative act. And therefore, nothing is spiritual. That's what it lends itself to. Nothing is spiritual. That the whole universe, when you don't believe in God, is material. The universe is material. It's made up of matter. So when I look at that, that's one view of reality. I can view reality. But over here, we are told that there is a God, and then the universe is not mathematical, but the universe is relational. Everything is in relationship to God in relationship one to another. And if there was a creator who created us, Genesis 126, in his likeness and image, that means that on earth there is free will. That means there is creativity. And there is choice which determines the future. The future is determined by choice. Now, frankly, listen to me. Sometimes you've got to step back You've got to look at it, and you've got to make a decision that says, this makes more sense to me. I'm not going to superimpose mine on you, but I'll tell you what I believe. I'll be honest with you. This left makes more sense to me. It makes more sense to me in my understanding of the world and in my experience of life that there is a universe where there is creativity, where there is free will, where there is choices that are left within the, the volition of man and woman, that, that it makes more sense to me to believe this, that the idea of the universe is simply mathematical and everything is determined and everything's already made and there is no creativity and there is no free will and there is no choice because everything is just a result of cause and effect. And so for me, I'm speaking for me, I immediately have to move towards God in the conversation. Then you have the issue of creation. Well, let me step back for a second. Some of the questions that were asked, I can't address all of them, but were like this. How can you believe in creation and not evolution? Well, I don't even know, be honest with you, how that's still a question in modern day culture. I'm so embarrassed. What do you mean, how do you believe in creation versus evolution? I know there's a reason for that. Sometimes we think we know what the Bible says about something without ever stopping to read the Bible. This might be very disturbing to you, but I want to say it to you. The Bible does not teach that the universe was created in six 24-hour days. It does not teach that. It's entirely possible, but it's not biblical. That it's six 24-hour days. 
And I know people I respect and people I love who believe this, six 24-hour days, and people whom I may even be related to (laughs) believe this. I'm saying it's possible, but just not biblical. I asked Siri. Siri wouldn't lie to me. Here's what Siri asked. A day, what is a day? Siri said a day is the time it takes for one rotation of the earth in relationship to the sun. That's a day. So it's 24 hours, give or take, here in our part of the world. But if you go to Scandinavia, it takes six months for a day. If you go to the South Pole, it could be six months of night before you get one glimmer of sunlight on the horizon. So even on our earth today, there are places where you have day. Go to Sweden. Go to northern Sweden. You can... You you can go on vacation in the middle of the winter and you won't see sunlight for the entire seven days. And there are places on the earth that it is always night. So what I'm saying is that 24 hours is not a consistent reality even on this planet. So when we talk about 724, we have an ethnocentric, cultured view of time. It's about where we live. On top of that, there's another dilemma. It's a small detail that makes things a little bit confusing. The sun wasn't even created till day four. The sun's not even here. So you cannot have a day where the earth rotates one time around the sun when there is no sun to relate to and rotate. A year, by the way, is the earth revolving around the sun in which it cannot revolve around the sun if the sun isn't around. So what are you saying, Craig? I'm saying we start counting history when the scriptures leave it in mystery. We start taking a framework and superimposing on our ethnocentric culture view of time of only 24 hours. On day four, the sun is created. Time, it is even a factor until day four then. You say, well, what kind of light? Well, there's all kinds of electro, uh, electromagnetic uh, force of light. Look at the rim deal. There's, there's parts of light that God could create on day one that would never shine forth from a sun until day four. I mean, this is, this is very clear. You can see this all throughout science. But here's what's amazing to me, that if humans weren't even created the sixth day, it wasn't like God was limited time by time. God doesn't need time. We humans need time. So time, in our respect, didn't even begin till day six. And what we do is we add it up as if everything is superimposed by what we experience now. So I want to be very clear. Are you ready? Very, very clear. Up to day four could have lasted a trillion years. Up to day four could have lasted a billion years of the first four movements of God. And it would be completely accurate in relationship to the Bible. Now, I know young earth creationism people, they believe in the earth is only about 10,000, 6,000 to 10,000 years old. Of course, carbon dating and all scientists says it's so much more than that. I tend to go the opposite, not beating you up if you do. I'm just not a young earth creationist. That the earth itself, four billion years old. This could have happened trillions of years. So... And then we act like it's 24 hours once Adam and Eve were there. <laughs> and, then, and then what happens is, of course, God rested on the seventh day for a full 24 hours. You know, he took a hammock Sunday. You know, it was Saturday back then, right? So he took a, he took a, a full rest for 24 hours. And, and we don't even understand that the seventh day could have lasted thousands of years, that the day of rest might have been God's description of what life was like on the planet when it was in relationship to God it was perfect. But we say it's just a day. I think it lasted more than a day. By the way, when we read it's Adam and Eve and then Cain and Abel, we really get confused because Cain kills his brother Abel and half the world's population is gone. Gone. It's gone. 
Where did half the population go? And we get really confused because when Cain kills Abel, there's not supposed to be any more people on the earth. And Cain says to God in Genesis 4.14, if you drive me out of the wilderness, everybody will want to kill me. Who is everybody? Who is everybody? What do you mean? He's the first two children. Where do they come from? How can these everybody's evolve without time? See, what we do, we project on the story. We, we think God creates humans on the sixth day. He rests on the seventh day. And on the eighth day, we blew it. We don't even think we had five minutes with God in paradise in a utopian society before we blew it as humans. We just think it's over. It doesn't even occur to us that thousands of years could have happened between Cain and Abel. Some people, I'm not saying I advocate it, some people don't think that Cain and Abel are the story of Adam and Eve's first children, but rather the story of humanity's self-destructive nature which is why God says to, Abraham, uh, to, to, to Eve, I will uh, increase your suffering and childbearing as if she's already had kids. Okay? She knows it's an increase from something she's already experienced. Now, it's interesting. When you study the Scripture in this way, this is the only way we can explain that the earth was already populated is in some way that Cain and Abel, a thousand years past, Adam and Eve, we know, lived 900 and something years to have multiple children. So what we've got to do is we've got to distinguish between superstition and philosophy and superstition and faith. It's really important for us to do that. What Scripture tells us is that God created the whole universe, and that's important because when we talk about evolution, we're talking about process. Now, I'm not here to beat up process. I think we should study process, right? I think we should. Microevolution, microevolution is not that things change Scientific DNA, but they evolve slowly over time. We believe in microevolution. It's the way we make sense of the animals in the world and the insects in the world, but not macroevolution, but process is something to be studied. But see, the problem is when you think of a world that's created by God, we understand that this universe is driven by purpose, not process. I think Darwin was right to study process. But if God created the universe, then there is intention But if God did not create the universe, then there is randomness. Randomness. Now listen to me. You know what's really, really odd about human beings? When we feel life is random, something inside of us moves into chaos. We get angry with God when random things happen to us that create human suffering. Why? Why doesn't randomness feel natural to us, yet intention is something we long for? If this is the reality of the universe, why aren't we okay with randomness? Why are we not feeling good when random things happen, but yet we long for intention? So now to take the question of creation. Someone asked the question of tsunamis, earthquakes, hurricanes. Well, let me address your question first and say it's an important question. But can I just say for you real quick, when we look at the universe, isn't it amazing how we somehow draw strangely, draw conclusions about God? Isn't it odd that we actually draw conclusions about God's character or existence based on how the universe is operating? Why would we do that? Even as an atheist, as an agnostic, why would we do that? Well, listen to Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Look at the Bible says. This is what the scripture tells us. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made in front of us so that people are without excuse. What Scriptures are telling us is that the universe actually points to God. The universe points to God. The universe reveals God. 
So you're exactly right. Who asked the question? Even natural disasters, if you believe there is a God, should tell us something about who God is. So somehow the universe is telling us something about God. I think it's interesting, listen, that a lot of people believe that the weather and the universe is intentional towards them, but they will not acknowledge that there's an existence of God. But see, you can't have intentionality unless a creator was intentional. You cannot have purpose unless a creator was purposeful. You cannot have purpose unless someone created it with purpose. So if the entire universe displays God's quality, in fact, in fact look what he says. We are actually without excuse. That if, if what is known about God can be understood by us, if we'll stop and look in creation, I thought about this morning putting up all kinds of pictures of God's greatest landscapes. I, I saved the images on my phone and I decided for time I won't just to let you get overwhelmed with these beautiful pictures. But what he says is that if we'll stop and look at creation, we'll understand very quickly that we will be without excuse in our knowledge of God. This is the language of God. People ask me, why doesn't God speak in a simple language? God's language is creation. And if you open your eyes, he speaks really simply. It's all around you. It's all around you. He goes on in Romans chapter 8, and look what he says. Romans chapter 8, I love this. And I think this is real significant because somebody asked the question, um, how does human suffering relate to natural disasters? That's a big question. Well, this is what Paul does. He unites human suffering with natural disasters. Look what he does. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. I consider that our present suffering, speaking of our own, are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation, that's created things, waits in eager expectation for us, the children of God, to be revealed. For the creation, the created things was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice. Creation didn't want it, but by the will of one who subjected it in hope. What is the creation hoping for? Creation is hoping, look what he says in the next verse. Go to the next slide. In hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And we know that the whole creation, that's all created things, has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth until this present time, Paul says. Now look at the next verse, 23. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we inwardly groan as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. I know this is big, but go with me a minute. The Bible teaches us that one singular act can actually have massive ramifications that become seismic and cosmic and affect change literally around the world. Now, I know this is crazy that one little act in Africa can affect the well-being of creation in Antarctica. I know that sounds like science fiction, or maybe that sounds exactly what scientists tell us today. I know that, that it's hard to believe biblically that one single act in the, in the continent of North America can affect the weather patterns in Europe. I know that's hard to believe. Or is it hard to believe at all? I know it's hard to believe that our emissions from our cars can actually create a hole in the ozone layer in which our planet lives. But God didn't know about quantum theory and quantum mechanics and complexity theory. He didn't know. He, the scientists had to catch him up on that. God didn't understand that when he created the earth. You know, he's way behind on this. He needs to take science again. Science is just catching up with what Paul is saying in Romans 8. That a small choice here from Adam can have a seismic effect that ruins the whole world. That the whole world is waiting for its redemption. Have you ever noticed, by the way, that you don't really know what's wrong with you until you see it played out in your relationships? 
Has <laughs> anyone noticed this? You don't really know what's inside of you until you see it played in your relationships. Let's be honest. Has anyone ever come to you and said, you are so arrogant? And you go, what are you talking about? I'm awesome. <sighs> right? What are you saying, Craig? Have you ever had anyone speak into your life and you can't even know you had the issues until those issues translate into human relationships? Like you don't even know your selfishness until your selfishness begins to affect the people around you. You don't even know that you have greed until your greed begins to affect the human relationships around you. You don't actually know the content of what is in you until you see it translated in the world that is outside of you. That's why the church is necessary. There's no such thing as a solitary Christian because you won't know your idiosyncrasies and where you need to grow in the character of Christ. This is not a part of the sermon, by the way, until you get involved in a community right? You don't know what's happening on the inside universe until you see the inside universe begin to affect the outside universe. In other words, this is how you know if a person's healthy. You know if a person's healthy on the inside if they have healthy relationships on the outside. If they got unhealthy relationships on the outside, it's because they're unhealthy inside. Listen, you can know what's happening on the universe inside of you because you are literally affecting the universe outside of you in your house. My God, that's what the scripture says. On a more cosmic level, Scriptures tell us that all of creation is affected by our brokenness in our souls. All of creation is affected by our brokenness. Our souls are groaning for redemption. Listen, wherever you come from in life in here, your soul knows something's wrong with you. Your soul knows it. And my soul knows something's wrong with me and it needs a connection bigger than myself. And I see it translated in my everyday life and all of my relationships. I see it in my life. I see it in my wife. I see it in my relationships. I can see, listen, I can see when I make choices that are related to God because those choices that are related to God make a better world because they come from a better me. Are you with me? And I create a more destructive world when there's a more destructive me because I learn of what's in me by what I'm affecting outside of me. That's all that Paul says. That's what creation is doing. It's being affected by the brokenness in our souls. So the earthquakes, tsunamis, you ask the question, hurricanes, they're all, ready, ready? They're all the external expression in creation of the devastation of the universe in your chest. The universe in your soul. Broken broken. We can see this on a human level, by the way. We know there's something wrong with us deeply when there's war and violence and poverty. We turn on the news. We know there's something wrong intrinsically when greed and pride and greed and poverty exist in the same city. We know, we know something's intrinsically wrong with us. And isn't it amazing that we somehow know something's broken inside of us when there's betrayal and deceit in relationships, but it has never occurred to us that our actual actions might actually be affecting creation that it's actually affecting creation. The choices we make actually affect planet Earth. You say, well, I don't think our human choices affect the Earth. Well, po waters don't pollute themselves. And we can see our air, but we can't breathe our air. What are you saying, Craig? Scripture tells us that we would not acknowledge the brokenness in our own souls if we didn't see the brokenness of creation. Did you hear what I said? You wouldn't recognize your own brokenness unless you saw the brokenness around you the brokenness in creation. So when we ask the question, what happens after we die? That's what somebody asked. Well, that question is not a science question. That goes back to the why question. What happens after we die? Can I be frank and honest with you? This is not a science question. And really the answer is who cares? If there is no God, 
then who cares what happens with you when you die? But see, there is something strange about being a human being. Your body is in decay, but your spirit longs to live. And you are terrified of non-existence. Even the atheist is. Even the agnostics terrified of non-existence. That's why they ask questions of what happens after we die because your body is in decay, but your spirit longs to live. Your spirit longs for communion. Why would we actually imagine something that's eternal, something of the idea of God? And so you ask the question, what is God's backstory? <laughs> that's a great question. Where does God come from? Wow. And this question could lead us not to believe in God because we don't know his backstory. If this question of we don't know God's backstory leads us not to believe in God, where did God come from? Because, listen, when I was a teenager, y'all, am I the only one that's weird and wired this way? When I was a teenager, I had literal migraines asking myself that question. Anybody else like, ooh, where did God come from? You know, I'm in my room for hours. You know, like, I'm mean, just trying to, it's mind-boggling. I was sitting in my office yesterday, and I went into that, that metaphysical thought process, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, like, just think of, like, life as it is. Like, what if there was no life? It's total ex- non-existence, but ex- non-existence is nothingness, and nothingness is what? Nothingness has to be something, and you ever going down those paths? I mean, it's just like, what? I mean, my, my mind. I mean, I literally had, had migraines thinking about where did God come from? Because what does it mean to always be? Like, what cause caused the cause? Like, we, we have a beginning. We have an end. We always are not. We had a beginning. We end. We can't understand it. It's beyond comprehension to say that you always were. You know what's really troubling? If there is no God, there is still something that existed that we can't explain. Where did that nothing come from? Well, if there's no God, everything came from nothing. Where did the nothing come from? Well, wait a minute. If that nothing has something, then what's that nothing's backstory? Like, what was it doing before it was something? Nothing? <laughs> If you think it will give you a headache to figure out where God came from, try to figure out where nothing came from and see how good your day is. Like, I don't know, one day, nothing thought to itself. I should do something. Makes no sense. Nothing can't do something. And I think it's interesting that people who... who who throw the spirit at us Christians, they think that faith is synchronicity, like it's just random events back to back to back, or they think it's coincidence. They think it's believing in superstition. Listen, no, no, no. The idea that nothing could motivate itself to do something, I'm nothing, but I'm gonna do something. That is serendipity. To me, that's coincidence. That's synchronicity. That is fantasy to me. Speaking of me. So the scripture tells us that all creation groans. Why? Because the entire universe is relational. It's relational, and you know this inside. But if it's not a God-centered world, then the entire relationship is driven by data. Data. The the universe is driven by data. What do you mean by that? If there's no God and what we believe in is natural order where everything simply involves, then, then behind that evolution and naturalism is simply math. And if there is no God, then the driving force of the universe is math. The driving force of the universe is math. But if there is a God and the universe is relational, and there is free will and creativity, then the driving force of the universe is love. Love. That's the driving force. And I can tell you this. You will not spend your whole life searching for math. But you will spend your whole life searching for love. You will find math by the time you're 16. Then you got the world figured out. 
love seems to be elusive and mysterious because it's the nature and the very driving, driving force of our God, of our universe. To understand the universe to be accidental, to be random, to me that requires, I just speak for me, way more faith than to believe that the universe is intentional and relational. This makes more sense to me based on my interaction with life, my experience of life. And we long for the things that lead us back to God, right? It's not just the universe that groans, it's our souls that groan, Romans 8 says. So I'll end in just a moment with this passage, John chapter 6. Come on, Jesse, when Jesus was walking the earth, Jesus made things difficult at times, didn't he? Look in John chapter 6. Jesus gave us really hard teaching. He starts saying things like, um, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. And some of the disciples are like, that's my cue, bro. <laughs> I ain't into cannibalism. You know what I'm saying? I'm out. And the whole, the whole people walk out and the dust settles. Right? That's my cue, boy. I've been good with you, Jesus, up until that cannibalism. You know, and they're gone. I mean, Jesus does this. And then it's like, there's 12 people left. Look what the text says. This is awesome. On hearing it, many disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Duh. <laughs> That's a duh. Don't you love scripture? Yeah, it's a pretty hard teaching. Got to drink his blood, eat his flesh. Who can accept it, they said. And aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, hey, does this guy just offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? And they would do that in a few, few months. <laughs> On hearing it, many of his disciples, go to the next verse. Verse 63, the Spirit gives life, he says. I love this. For the flesh counts for nothing, Jesus says. And the words I've spoken to you, they're full of spirit and life. Yet there's some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them would betray him and not believe in him. Look at the next verse says. And so he went on to say to them, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. And from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Which, by the way, there were two people in the first gathering that the Father enabled to come to Jesus and I prayed with him. We prayed with him to accept Jesus as Lord of their life. I got to talk with him in the lobby. I think that deserves celebration right there. This is no way. This is no way. He says the Father's enabled them. He says, you don't want to leave too, do you? He asked the 12. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. People said, I'm out. And Peter said, really? Jesus said, you guys want to go too? He said, Really? Like exactly where are we going to go, Jesus? It ain't like we had exciting lives before you met us on Galilee that day. And Peter says, you alone, God, have the words of life. Translation, you're the only really life I've ever met. You're the only real life I've ever contacted. You're the only real life I've ever interacted with, he says. Where, well, there's nothing for me to go back to, Jesus. I don't have anything to go back to. And I think this interaction is one of the most significant in scriptures because out of it comes this great question. If there's a God and he's relational and the driving force of the universe is love and that God wants relationship with people and that the universe is not accidental as opposed to the universe is mathematical and the universe is fatalistic and there is no free will and there is no creativity, the scriptures actually tell us that that universe is spirit. That's what the scriptures tell us. Which, by the way, now matches our current understanding of science and the universe because a world without God is a world that is only full of material. 
And if you stutter in modern science, we believed for a while that matter and energy were different. Matter was like hard stuff. Energy was kinetic energy. It was something for potential. But do you know what scientists tell us today? That matter and energy are not different. Matter is just energy reorganizing itself through its own unique intelligence. So in other words, the same energy that's in a rock is also in a deer. And the same energy that is in Savannah's body is also in the universe. And the same energy that is out in space is in an infinite. And if that don't blow your mind and lead you to a genuine faith, I don't know what will. God says the universe is spirit. Spirit in life. So we ask the question, if the universe is spirit, Craig, and Aren't all religions the same? Now listen, I know this is a well-intended question. Aren't all the religions the same? Like over here, you've got Buddhism, and you've got Hinduism, and you've got Islam, and you've got Christianity, you've got Catholicism. Aren't all religions the same? Well, I would tell you, I've never been a huge fan of religion. <laughs> I've never really, I've gotten in trouble with many things I've said about religion. In some ways, like in the Southeast, many Bible Bible people, Bible Belt people have to be saved from their salvation to meet Jesus. Right? There's there's a lot of people who who literally need to be saved from Christianity for Jesus to have his way in our culture. Phenomenal Christianity. So I've never been a, a big fan of religion, but listen to me. If you're an atheist, listen, I'm not fighting in the sense that you don't think uh, or that you have to believe in God. But what I want you to make really, really clear and understand is that religions tell us that God is up here and we're all trying to get to God. Now, by the way, we're not trying to get to God because God is a good idea. Somehow, intrinsically, our souls know that where there is God, there is life. And we're all trying to live. That's all we're trying to do. Everybody's just trying to live. So our souls intrinsically tell us that in the presence of God, there's life. So we're intrinsically trying to get to life. Somehow the human spirit knows where God is, there's life. So you have all these religions like Hinduism and Buddhism and God and Christianity and Islam. And it's all these steps to get to God and practices and rituals. And they tell you to pray seven times, face in the east and go through acts of penance. And the way we understand God is just like a, it's like a, a global cosmic smackdown. Like the Buddhists are trying to get to God and God's up here going, no. Hit him back down to the earth. And the Muslim people are trying to get to God and God's like, no. And the Buddhists are trying to get to God, and God's like, no, and smacking them down the earth. And the, the Christians are trying to get to God, and God's like going, no. It's like this global cosmic smackdown. <laughs> That's what we think. Now listen, you don't have to choose to believe in Jesus. No, no, no. But you can't say that these are the same. You know why these aren't the same? You've got to separate Jesus from the rest of these religions because all of these religions are a way to get to God. And the message of Jesus is the exact opposite. He is teaching us how God got to us. Jesus is how God came to humanity. Jesus is how God came to the earth. Jesus is how God came to look us in the eye. Jesus is how God came to love us and hug our necks. Jesus is how God came and paid the ultimate penalty for our sin, for our wrongdoing. So you don't have to believe in him, but you do have to separate him from the rest of the religions. Because he's not a way of how we get to God. He's a way of how God got to us. Craig, I'm with you with this God thing, but I can't get to the Jesus thing. It's hard believing in Jesus. Well, let me just tell you, if God exists and God's relational and God has a love and it drives the whole universe and God wants creativity and free will, then Jesus makes perfect sense. Jesus is God's express love for you on earth. Jesus makes sense to me. 
See, God is the name I use for God when I'm searching for Him, but Jesus is the name I use for God when He's searching for me. And so it's as if, why are we worshiping God and, or Jesus and not God? God is, if you will, kind of like Moses. He sees God. When you see God, it's like God has turned around, but when He turns His head, you'll see that it's Jesus. <laughs> you'll, you'll see that it's the glory of God in the face of Jesus. He is Jesus. I'll end with this, just a more, if you like it this way, a metaphysical understanding of God. People ask, how can God be in three persons? How can God be in three persons? I don't understand that. Well, I think it's fascinating. The Bible says that God is light. You know what light is? Light moves at 186,000 miles per second. There's nothing that can move at the speed of light but light. And when you think about God moving at the speed of the light, do you know what science tells us? That all matter, all matter, all matter, all rocks, anything matter. All matter is, is energy slowing down to becoming stationary. And if you want to understand why God is three persons, Jesus is God slowing down to our pace. Jesus is God's expressed son, his very image, his very nature, his very character coming to our pace. And when God takes on our speed, God takes on our meter, God takes on our frequency, he takes on flesh and blood and his name is Jesus of Nazareth. I'm so glad that God didn't want to move so fast he was willing to leave us behind. I'm so glad that God did not move so quickly that he did not slow down enough to meet us where we are as his children. I never forget two years ago, I took Knox to the Alabama-Tennessee football game. We caught caught in a wreck on 75 North. We waited forever. I drove down the median. I went through the grass. I went through the woods in my four-wheel drive. I was doing everything I could to get to that Tennessee game. I parked a mile and a half away. I said, Knox, we are going to move fast. I already heard the kickoff happen in Neyland Stadium. I grabbed him by the hand, and I moved as fast as I could. Those little legs are going a mile a minute. And I remember him saying, Daddy, Daddy, would you please slow down? I mean, I'm literally making him fly. You know what I'm saying? I'm holding his hand, and he's like, he's galloping down the street. You know what? And finally, it hit me. It hit me, Caprice. I thought, you know what? If I teach him, if I always teach him, there would come a day where I would never wait for him, then there would be a day where I wouldn't be able to keep up with him and he wouldn't wait for me. It hit me. And I stopped. And I turned and I got down on my knees and I looked at that little five-year-old in the face and I made eye contact with him and I said, Daddy's so sorry. I said, I'm so sorry for going so fast. But listen to me. There's coming a day. <laughs> I turned it on him. When Daddy won't be able to keep up with you. And you better remember that I didn't walk off and leave you. Aren't you so glad that God was not willing to move so fast? That he left us behind, but he kneeled down in the person of Jesus. And he was born of a virgin and took a knee. And bowed himself to obedient death, even death on the cross. And he looked us in the face. And said, I want to teach you how to walk with me. And when I reached down to grab that hand... I walked with him at his pace to the game. And God says to you, I want to reach down and grab you by the hand and walk with you through the game of life. Jesus is God slowing down. People say, why didn't God fix all of this? The world's a mess. 
Do you know what it would mean for God to fix all this? He would have to eliminate all of us humans and start over again. Aren't you thankful that God didn't eliminate all humans, but he's willing to slow down and take a knee? And he's willing to transform humanity one person at a time. Wow. What a patient God. What a God full of compassion. And that final question, I love that question. If you're walking down the street and you were held at gunpoint and you were the daddy and the the, the shooter said, somebody's got to die, which is to die. You would say, kill me as a dad, not my son. Well, that sounds like a great metaphor. That sounds like a really good metaphor, except for one thing. You think that God's the victim. You think that God the Father was worried for his life when the gunman pulled the gun. And you think that God the Father was worried for his son's life when the gunman pulled the gun. But God the Father was not concerned and afraid for his life, and he wasn't afraid for his son's life. He wasn't trying to save his life or his son's life. He was trying to save the gunman. And so he could let his son die by the gunman so that his son could rise again. And the man who pulled the trigger could set his gun down and live for the one who died and rose again for him. God was not a victim in the cross. God was willing to go to the cross that you and I, gunman, who holds our our pistol to God's head, if you will, we were enemies in the minds of God, would pull the trigger and realize that God could not be kept in the grave, would realize that God could not be held down, but would raise again. And what our problem is as a nation is we keep trying to shoot God in the head. We keep trying to kill God, but you can't keep a resurrected Savior down. He keeps getting back up again and getting back up again and getting back up again. And yet the reality is, how is it possible We've become so educated and advanced, yet we have not evolved out of our need for God. How is it possible? Maybe it's because you were created in His image and your soul knows where it belongs and it's restless until it gets there. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.